great tunes are great tunes. It doesn't really matter where or when, does it? Okay, this is the fourth uh, class in the Sandwich Peninsula Ecclesial Study Day on February 2017. Our speaker is Brother David Levin, and the topic this morning is res Resurrection as Exhortation. Brother David. like we have volume. Open, please, your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, Luke 15. <clears throat> and if you're very familiar with scripture, you probably know what's in Luke 15. You're thinking, yeah, I know what's there. And I'm going to ask you a question about Luke 15. After you skim through it, if you're not familiar, you'll, as soon as you get there, you'll be familiar. <clears throat> and unlike the question with which I started yesterday, I'm actually going to ask you for your answer this time. Remember yesterday we started by asking you to write down a list of your Bible heroes. And this time... Uh, I'm going to ask you another question. <clears throat> and there's five possible answers, <clears throat> and I'll ask you to raise your hand. One through five. Which one you think? And here's the question. <clears throat> Excuse me. Once you uh, allocate your focus to Luke 15, oh, yeah, yeah, that chapter, it's parables in it. Now here's the question. <clears throat> How many parables are in Luke 15? How many do you see? So, so go through there and here's the possible answers. <clears throat> One, two, three, four, or more than four. <clears throat> Five or more. <clears throat> There's no conversion, so it's the same U.S. or Canadian. So, uh, so your answer will be the same as mine if we're thinking the same way. But go through there and kind of skim through what you see in Luke 15 and determine how many parables do you see in Luke 15. <clears throat> Take a moment, moment there. <clears throat> it's not a trick question. It's just, just want to see what. Okay. So here's <clears throat> how many people are going to. I'll start with number one. How many people say there's one parable in Luke 15? Any takers for one? None. How about two? taker for two, three parables. <clears throat> Quite a few people see three, four, got a couple, one and a half, uh, maybe, 
<clears throat> some people move, verging on four. How about greater than four? You see, so, more that it's five or more parables. <clears throat> okay. Well, let's look and see the. Uh, let's look and see uh, what <clears throat> the justification might be for each answer. Okay, nobody raised their hand for one, but that, that is uh, actually a good choice. The reason being, uh, in verse 3, <clears throat> it says, so he told them this parable. And that's the only time the word parable occurs in the chapter. He told them the parable, and then in verse 8 and verse 11, where the other two narratives start, it doesn't say those are different parables. So you could say there's really only one parable there, but it's told in three different ways. So that would be the justification if you want to say there's really only one parable. How about two? Who who wants to argue for two parables? <clears throat> Nobody wants to take that one up. Well, you could say two because you could say, well, there's really just two versions of the one about the coin and the sheep. They're, they have the same format, but the one about the lost, the, the, the prodigal son is different. So you can say there's really two parables, and one is given in two forms. So that would be, a, I think, an argument there. How about three? That seems to be the most obvious answer. There's a story about a lost sheep, a story about a lost coin, and a story about prodigal son. So we, three would be the, the, the prima facie answer, I think. But some people saw more than three. So where does, where does a fourth one come from? I think, Dan, can you add your hand up? The elder son. Yeah. Yeah, the, the parable of the prodigal son is really, uh, uh, it's t t two. There's two parables in one. It's the, the the involvement of the older son is, is just as much as the article son, too. So there'd be a good argument for saying, really, there's four, four stories, four parables here. How about more than four? Where, where's the fifth come from? And the father, okay. So if you want to say there's really a parable about the father's concern, then you've got five. Great. Okay. Well, the point is that there's no point. Uh, it's how we read these things. <clears throat> but I do want to show a, a way of however you see them, one through five, <clears throat> is there's a cohesiveness here that, that ties these together in an unusual way and makes a significant point at the end. <clears throat> and for sake of vocal continuity. I'm just going to uh, skip a lot of the details that this rich, rich, rich stuff here, but I want you to notice <clears throat> that the first two, I'll just say episodes, the first two narratives, have a moral ending, that is. What, even so, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than in 99 who repenting her. Okay? And the question is, how does that moral connect to 
the, the nature of the parable. In other words, how does the parable illustrate repentance? Jesus says <clears throat> that these are about repentance. But how does a sheep or a coin repent? There is no illustration of repentance in these two, uh, well, let's say parables. Even if a sheep could repent, is the sheep, does this say that a sheep strayed away and then the sheep realized, oh my goodness, I'm lost, I need to come back to the fold. That's not what happens. What happens? The shepherd goes and finds the sheep, picks it up, and drags it back. <clears throat> the sheep is passive. The sheep does nothing. The sheep does not illustrate repentance. And a coin, well, that's not going to happen. No matter. Coins don't crawl out of the corner and say, here I am. You know, I, I, I should have rolled away. <clears throat> so there's a disconnect between what Jesus says is the moral of the story and what the story is actually about. The stories are about, if anything, they're about God going out to find lost people and bring them back. They're not about repentance. Yeah, Jennifer's looking, saying, hmm, interesting, interesting, no. Now, <clears throat> keep that kind of in suspense, so... You know, we're left up in the air here. He's telling these episodes, and then he's saying, just so. It's like, and if you're listening to these, you're going to say, but Lord, I don't understand. How is repentance illustrating these stories? And he says, okay, just keep listening. So then he tells the third story. <clears throat> A man has two sons. And what happens here? The son goes away. He takes the money. He squanders it. He he comes to his right mind. He does what? Does he repent? Exactly. He repents. He comes back. Now, what's the moral of the third story? You have to go down to verse uh, <clears throat> 22 through 24, please. <clears throat> Siri, read 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Okay. So here, at the end of the story, where you would expect the father to say, for this my son repented and came home, he says he was lost and is found. In other words, there's a, there's a mismatch here. This is the moral that should have been on the first two. This sheep was lost and is now found. The coin is lost and is now found. But there he had the morals about repentance, which should have been here. So you see there, there, they're, they're intertwined in a way that you have to hear all three of them and figure out what's Jesus getting at. It, 
you know, he seems like he's got the, the ending, the moral of the story switched up. But what he's saying is, you know, when we put all these together, is that repentance and God's searching are going on concurrently. People are not coins or sheep. People have to repent. But God is always directing. God is looking. God is searching. God is bringing people back. When people repent, God finds the way to bring them into the fold. So he, he interconnects these stories that way. Now, one more feature of this we want to look at. <clears throat> Read again, look at verse 24 and also... 32. If you could read those two, please. 24 and 32. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to make merry. But it was meet to make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. <clears throat> so there's an extra phrase here. It is true the son was lost and is found. But he adds, this my son was dead and is alive. Now you don't need that to make the point of the story. He could have just said he was lost and is found. He had gone away and has come back. But by adding the overlay of dead and alive, he brings us into what I call the exhortational aspect of, of resurrection. This is a, a description of resurrection, dead and alive. It was as if he was dead. He was gone. He didn't exist anymore. But yet he has life again in the grace of God and his own repentance. The phrase didn't need to be in there. But it's added to show us that when God brings people <clears throat> from whatever circumstance of life, no matter how badly we mess up our lives, waste our inheritance, go away, lose, you might be dead, but you can become alive again. God brings people back. He finds you. We repent and we become alive again. <clears throat> so that's the power of exhortation, of resurrection as exhortation. This young man who wasted everything comes back to life again as the father searches for him and as he repents. He was lost and is found. Turn to Romans chapter 4 and we'll look at another way in which life and death in life is used as an exhortational manner to show us that no problem is too big for God, no situation is so bad, and that God overlays his power as resurrection in a metaphorical or a figurative sense. And this episode has to do with Abraham and Sarah having Isaac. <clears throat> it's 
in this section of Roman, <clears throat> Paul is establishing that Abraham was justified by his faith, not his observance to the law, by making the point that <clears throat> Abraham <clears throat> believed God. That's in a quote. Uh, <clears throat> Verse 3, Abraham believed God and is reckoned to his righteousness. That's in Genesis 15. <clears throat> and he makes the point that that occurred before Abraham was circumcised. In other words, Abraham was a Gentile when God accepted his faith. He was an uncircumcised Gentile before he became the father of the Jews. He was the father of the faithful. <clears throat> but at that point, Abraham had no seed, so God could not fulfill his promises of the son of Abraham until Abraham had children. <clears throat> that came a bit later. <clears throat> but Abraham's faith was reckoned as righteous, and that's in verse 10. He said, but this was before he was circumcised. And then he, when he goes on to exemplify how strong Abraham's faith was, that Abraham believed that God would make of him a great nation, even though he had no children, that Abraham's belief transcended his own reproductive inability. In other words, Abraham was reproductively dead. There was no biological way that Abraham could have an offspring. But he believed that God would still provide this for him. So let's look at that. <clears throat> uh, so let's look at uh, Romans 4 and read verses 16 through 24. 16 to 24. <clears throat> for this cause it is of faith that it may be according to grace, to the end that the promise may be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made thee, before him whom he believed, even God, who giveth life to the dead, and calleth the things that are not as though they were. Where are we going to, sorry? 24. 24. Who in hope believed against hope, to the end that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which he had which had been spoken, so shall I seed be. Without being weakened in faith, he considered his own body now as good as dead, he being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet looking, not, yet looking unto the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised he was able to perform. Wherefore also it was reckoned unto him for righteousness, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was reckoned unto him, but for our sake also unto whom it shall be reckoned, who believe on him that raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Okay. <clears throat> Let's look at some of the, couple of the details here about Abraham's faith. <clears throat> Remember, God promised him a seed or a child, special descendant through whom he would inherit the earth forever. Mm. 
promises comes through in chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, 22. In Genesis, it's repeated many times, then it's amplified. <clears throat> Paul tells us in Galatians, the seed is Jesus, the seed is one, which is Christ. We all inherit through Jesus. Abraham was an old man. Sarah was not quite as old, but still old. Uh, <clears throat> when they left Ur, sometime later, when Abraham was 86, he was still, however, able to impregnate Hagar and give birth to Ishmael. <clears throat> Sarah was barren all of her life. So she had never been able to conceive, but at age 86, Abraham was still reproductively viable. <clears throat> However, by the time he gets to be 100 years old, when Isaac is born, he is no longer, because it said Abraham was as good as dead. It's considered his own body as good as dead. So sometime between the birth of Ishmael and we'll say a year before the birth of Isaac, Abraham became impotent. Sarah, who was never able to conceive, had become postmenopausal by this point, because it says that it's in Genesis 18, it had ceased to be with her after the manner of women. So she never had a damn now she's totally out of it. So both of them are really done for. <clears throat> And back in those days, having no fertility clinics and modern drugs, they're not going to have children. I mean, they're 100 years old, 90 years old. She's postmenopausal. He's impotent. What are they going to do? He still believes. So there's a, there's, a, there's a biological background here. And Abraham's saying, we're dead. We are reproductively dead. But I still believe that God is going to somehow make this happen. <clears throat> well... Because of his faith, <clears throat> they did have the, the miraculous birth of Isaac. <clears throat> verse 20, again, or verse uh, 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, because he was about 100 years old. It was not true even as an old man at the birth of Ishmael, but now it was true. Or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, she was as good as dead. <clears throat> but no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's amazing. It's absolutely amazing faith that he had. But the point we want to <clears throat> see here is those additions of, of how Paul inflects this episode as an instance of resurrection. His body as good as dead. Sarah's body as good as dead. And then at the very end of the chapter that Abraham's faith being recorded as righteousness <clears throat> is not just for him, but for all of those who believe in what? It will be reckoned to us who believe in him that
that raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. <clears throat> so Paul concludes his episode, which starts off with a God being greater than any human biological problem, that is, he can make <clears throat> life out of death there. But also, God can forgive any sin who is put to death for our sins and raised for our justification. So he, he, he segues or he shifts the emphasis from Abraham's faith in, a, in a God's physical <clears throat> to God's moral power put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the exhortational message here is that <clears throat> resurrection is used as exhortation to say that there's no problem too big for God. There's no problem too big for God. Good is dead, not an issue. God makes life out of death. It's exhortation to trust in God in all things. So with that, let's look to the reading we had and go to the resurrection of Lazarus to see our last example <clears throat> of the exhortational value of resurrection. Because here we're not going to be talking about a man who was as good as dead. We're going to be talking about a man who was dead. There's no metaphor here. This is not like the prodigal son who was dead and now is alive. This is Lazarus. This is dead. This is not reproductively dead. This is not morally dead. This is not lost in sin. This is dead. Dead. Gone. <clears throat> well, it's a wonderful narrative here, of which I'm only going to touch on a few relevant highlights. <clears throat> They're in Bethany, or John 11. <clears throat> there is a family of two brothers and two sisters. Mary and Martha, Lazarus, and Judas Iscariot, <clears throat> who was undoubtedly the brother also. Not going to go into the uh, demonstration of that. Lazarus is probably a young man, certainly not older than Jesus, maybe a lot younger. His death was tragic. He had some illness. This is like a very young person suddenly dying of something. This is uh, you know, a devastating tragedy for the family and all the friends of Lazarus. <clears throat> they send for Jesus while he is yet sick. They know Jesus can heal him. Jesus purposely delays because while it would have been Quite a miracle to heal Lazarus while he was sick. It would be an even bigger miracle to heal him while he was dead. They didn't know that. Jesus knew that. So Jesus delays. <clears throat> By the time he shows up, Lazarus is dead, buried, embalmed, cold, and quite gone. 
Mary and Martha are so horribly distressed that Jesus delayed. They both say the same thing to him. Why did you take so long if you had come? Our brother would not have died. Jesus says, watch this. Just watch this. So it builds up to be, say, a huge emotional setting. Jesus cries. He finally comes up to the tomb, has the stone moved away, and does the most absurd thing, if if you were anybody but Jesus, that is, the absurd thing you can imagine, which is to yell into a tomb to somebody who's dead and tell them to come out. It says, he said with a loud voice, which I obviously can't not do today, but Lazarus, come out. He's a dead man. You know what? This, this doesn't happen. But the dead man came out. <clears throat> and the value of belief in that miracle for Jesus' own resurrection to come shortly, as you can see, how close this was to Jesus of, you know, man actually in the tomb and cold and dead for three days. That Jesus knew that it would be God's angels telling him to come out within, I don't know, a year or so, whenever this happened. There's that, and for all who saw this. But there's a few more details here that really amplify this even greater story. This is just, just the way this text is constructed is absolutely uh, amazing. I'm going to show a few things to you. <clears throat> the name Lazarus <coughs> occurs, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, in chapter 11 and 12, <coughs> there's 11 occurrences of the name Lazarus. If you look at verse 14, where Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. From verse 14 until verse 43, however, the name Lazarus does not occur. There's a space in which he is only referred to as a pronoun or your brother or the dead man. The name Lazarus disappears from the text. It occurs five times up to there. And the sixth occurrence is in verse 43 where he says, Lazarus, come out. So the whole time Lazarus is dead, he has no identity. He's just your brother. He's the dead man. He's him. But the name Lazarus is never used in the text during the time he is dead. It's emphasized he's gone. Even more. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha is the sister of who? The dead man didn't say the sister of Lazarus. Remember, he's, he's dead. He's gone. He's only 
the dead man. It's the first time that phrase is used. And then that is the phrase that shows up again in verse 44. The dead man came out. Dead men don't come out of graves. But this was different. This was after Jesus called him by name again. So you have the dead man. Then Lazarus come out the first time this this actual name is used since way back in verse uh, 13, 14. And now the dead man is alive again. It's just remarkable how the text is emphasizing this. And for the rest of 11 and chapter 12, he's Lazarus again. He's back to life. Well, that's pretty good, but there's even more. This emphasis on the name. Turn back one page to chapter 10 of John. This is, and look at this. Look at the first four verses. John 10, 1 through 4. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. When he hath put forth all his own, he goeth before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. This parable or illustration of the sheep is actually what's happening with Jesus and Lazarus. The door that is open, the gatekeeper opens. Remember Jesus said, move the stone. He calls them by name in verse 3. He calls them by name. Remember, Lazarus, come out. Jesus opens and calls Lazarus. And the text in 11 is so careful about how it uses that name Lazarus. So when he says it calls him by name, it's that's that extra meaning. He's not the dead man anymore. He's brought to life again by the use of his name, Jesus calling him by name. And he leads them out, just as it's written in John 11, chapter 11. He came out of the grave. When he has brought them out, all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him. So Lazarus is not only brought back to life, he's brought back because of the voice of Jesus calling him by name. It's an act of shepherding as well as an act of resurrection. And even one more, one more amplification of this theme. Go back to John chapter 5. Jesus is discoursing on judgment and how 
he, the Father, has given to Jesus all judgment. <clears throat> and those who hear the voice of Jesus will live. Look at John 5 and verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour cometh, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will live. He's talking metaphorically about the people dead in sins. But he's also talking figuratively about what's going to happen in the resurrection. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. This was literally true of Lazarus. So I said, you don't walk up to a tomb and talk to dead people unless you're Jesus. The dead will hear his voice. Dead can't hear your voice unless they're brought back to life. So it's more than a story of people being redeemed from sin. It's about, it doesn't matter where you are in life, even if you're dead. Jesus will bring you life again. <clears throat> the redemption from sin is given in terms of life and death, resurrected. The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear. That is people listening to Jesus. Now is, John chapter 5, people listening, the spiritually dead hear Jesus. The hour is coming and will be when Lazarus will literally hear the voice of Jesus. The hour is yet coming in the resurrection when all those who have died in Jesus will hear his voice when he says to them, come out. They know him by name. So exhortation, <clears throat> the, the value or the application of resurrection as exhortation is to teach us that there is no problem too big for God. Not life, death, no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we mess up, no, the prodigal son goes away, Abraham dead in his old age, Lazarus dead in the tomb, and God says, the dead shall be alive. This is the power of resurrection that encourages us daily to believe that that's the Jesus we believe in, that God resurrected him, and he has that power in our lives now and when he returns.